When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Voice of Reason podcast. I am today's special introductory host, Deckard Kane, from the small town of Tristram, a medieval settlement which has recently been overrun by Hellspawn and these quizzical creatures that force everyone to repeat the same dialogue loops endlessly, up to and including my ritual slaughter. But enough about me. Today's guest on the Voice of Reason podcast needs no introduction, because there isn't one. This is going to be an hour of silence pockmarked by Benjamin's musings on various incidents in his life. Now please lean back, keep your eyes on the road, and enjoy the show. So, this is Benjamin Boyce. I wanted to give a bit of a uh, autobiogra- autobiography about my life. And specifically, people have been asking me, well, why was he at Evergreen? Uh, somebody on Reddit thought that I was a member of the Evergreen cult, and so my work should not be looked at, or conversations about my work should be discounted because I was at Evergreen. I've heard the same argument about Brett Weinstein, that he was a part of that cult, and so he got what he deserved, or he was a part of that whole mess. And uh, so I just wanted to clear that up uh, for anybody who who was interested or who didn't know my story. So I'll talk about that. I don't know exactly where to start, but I guess we'll just start at me going to Evergreen. So uh, why did I go to Evergreen? I ended up in Olympia in 2010. I had been in Portland from 2000 to 2010. Before then, before then, I was in Chicago. And before then, I was in California. I grew up in California, spent uh, nine months in Saskatchewan at a Bible college. And then I moved to Chicago, where my dad was getting a Master's of Divinity, which always brings me a lot of uh, joy, because it's just such a ridiculous phrase, Master of Divinity, um, because he had always wanted to be a pastor. I was, was always trying to become a pastor and to, uh, you know, be a head of a church for a long time, but he eventually, uh, I think he was 40, he decided, or right around 40, he decided that he had to go to college and to specifically get a master's degree in order to do what he wanted to do. And so that's what he did. They moved from California to Chicago. I stayed behind to finish up my senior year of high school. And then I went up to a Bible college in uh, Prince Albert, Saskatchewan for a year. And then I went down and I met up with my family in Chicago. And I was there for about five years from 1996 to 2000. And then I, I went back there for another year because of a girl or a woman. And uh, in Chicago, I, you know, so I'd grown up in California. We moved around like about every year. They moved us from one place to another. My parents were very restless um, because I think because of uh, a cult that they were in, a very uh, negative, uh, very uh, authoritarian uh, or some sort of uh, very negative cult uh, that they were in in the mid 70s when I was a baby. And they left that they left that when I was five and moved and moved and moved and moved and moved. Now, the cult uh, 
was kind of formed the background radiation of my understanding of society, my understanding of authority, and my understanding of um, not spirituality, but religion. Uh, during my upbringing, I had a number of spiritual experiences that showed me that there's a reality that's being talked about. But whenever I, but I, I'd always distinguished between the reality and how people were speaking about that reality and the organizational structure of a society that's built around uh, spiritual concepts. So I understand that there's negative and positive religions, and then I understand that there's this entire spiritual realm or this realm of consciousness that interacts more or less with that, you know, that narrative structure, that societal structure, and then the theological structure, uh, the, or the, all the rationalizations that go into that. Anyways. So where was I? I went up to Bible college. I met up with my family in Chicago. I had grown up in California. Sorry, I'm going to edit this down. So I grew up in California, moving around from one place to another, to another, to another. But mostly I was in the suburbs or, you know, kind of we were low income, uh, but mostly I was kind of outside of major cities. I spent a lot of time outside of Sacramento and Loomis and in Rockland, um, which is over by Roseville, uh, which is uh, if you go from Sacramento to Tahoe, it's somewhere along that road uh, or that interstate, I-80. If I recall correctly, it's been a while since I took that road. So uh, I bring that up because I had grown up pretty insular, like the, the culture that I was in. I guess you could call that white, uh, white suburban culture. But I was always kind of on the low end of the bracket. I was always kind of an outsider because we were moving around from one place to another. And also the form, formative society uh, in the background of my consciousness, not something that I was really directly conscious of it, but because the background of my consciousness had been kind of built up within a negative cult-like structure. I'd always been outside or always skeptical. So if I'm, so if I was not um, literally an outsider, because I had just shown up, I had always kind of had this kind of outsider standing, because I don't trust authority, or I, or I don't trust cliques, or I'm wary of the ways in which society is regulated around certain narratives. While I'm wary of that, still think that they're very important. Um, but at the same time, you have to be able to judge that. So when I went to Chicago, that was the first really directly multicultural place I had ever really been in. Uh, Chicago's very, very eth ethnically diverse. Uh, at that point in time, if I recall correctly, there was a street in Chicago, it was called Kedzie, and we were just uh, really close to Kedzie Street. But that street in Chicago had more languages spoken on it than any other street in the world at that time. That's how diverse Chicago was. And I was in the north side. And furthermore, Chicago's pretty, pretty, Chicago is pretty segregated. So there's a south side of Chicago and a north side of Chicago. And then it's also very insular. So there's a lot of immigrant communities. And they kind of, um, it's a really interesting form of multiculturalism where everybody's kind of in their bubbles and they're all kind of jutted up against each other. So there's not a lot of cross-pollination, um, probably uh, more so as, you know, people uh, grow up and then branch out. Uh, I, what I'm saying is people move there or pretty insular within their community. And then there's mix, mixtures that go on ethnically over the course of generations, of course. So the Chicago experience was very formative to me. I was, nine, I was 18 when I arrived and I left when I was 23 or 24. Uh, yeah, I think it was 24. 
And so that period of my life is pretty intense just because I was 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23 and 24. So pretty intense, but also it was uh, that point in time where I was surrounded in a big city. The first time I was in a big city, uh, which kind of disgusted me at first because Chicago, because California is pretty clean, a lot of suburbs, a lot of newer developments, right? So the oldness of California probably dates back to, you know, the stuff that I was aware of probably 60s, but mostly 70s and 80s. That was my sense of history. And before that was like, you know, trailer park and stuff like that. So I didn't really have a direct experience of older societies. And Chicago was much more older, kind of a lot of cracks and uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of busyness and a lot of grime and guck. And plus the weather in Chicago is very different from the weather in California. And I don't know why that necessarily matters, but it was, it did have a very strong impact on my psychology while I was in Chicago. Um, My parents left after a year of me being there and I stayed there and I kind of went through very high highs and very low lows. And I went through this kind of manic depressive phase, which I've mapped out elsewhere. Um, So that particular cultural experience uh, opened me up to different ways of living, different foods specifically, uh, different meetings of cultures. And that really showed me that it kind of burst my California bubble and kind of gave me a lot of creases and kind of, you know, shaped me up uh, in certain respects and kind of hardened me. However, because of the experimentations I was doing with uh, different sorts of philosophies, theologies, religions, relationships, and substances, I burnt myself out by 2000. And I kind of had like a a crisis. I entered into a crisis state, not something like not a psychotic break or anything like that. But I was just completely broken down as a person. I had made certain errors in my behavior. uh, And I had received um, by the grace of that which uh, informs me, I received uh, an indication of the truth of my life, an indication of the purpose of my life, but I could no longer fulfill that purpose uh, in Chicago. And I was at this uh, gathering of people, uh, at this uh, spiritual uh, kind of organization that I found that suited me. I They were having this uh, Congress in Portland, and I went over to Portland, and I felt all of the stress inside of me just kind of melt away, and I got, uh, I felt like uh, an ability to breathe and to think and to be calm, which I hadn't felt in a while because of the way that I was living, and also Chicago's really busy. And when I went back to Chicago after that weekend, I had I melted down, and uh, I just kept on uh, melting down until I made the decision to move to Portland. So I moved to Portland. And uh, kind of started all over again. I entered into a state of like blank slateism. I just started from the beginning over and I reinvented myself and I pursued my calling, which I thought was writing. And I kind of just found a job that worked for me, which was oddly enough, I did not expect this, but it was working in preschool. I found this preschool uh, in Portland and I 
it just made sense for me to be there. And I, the way that I kind of frame it, uh, maybe poetically, was that I had to rediscover what it is to be human again. And the best way to do that, you know, they say that those who can do, those who can't teach. So I had to teach being human in order to really understand what it is to be a human being. And uh, so I kind of, yeah, I was just a, an aide, they called it. And uh, so I wasn't really a teacher per se at the beginning, but I did take a certain uh, level of seriousness in studying the behavior that I was managing. So I was managing the children and I was studying the children at the same time. And I also found a place where I could be myself in preschool. It's really interesting. The way that my brain works, the creativity, the language. I got to start to play around with all these things that I had taken very, very seriously when I was in Chicago. When I was in Chicago, I was very ambitious, wanted to be a writer, uh, was super ambitious about that project and took it very, very seriously. And, um, and then when I moved to Portland, I still uh, took that project seriously, but it was through the form of play. And I started playing around with stories, tried to tell stories, and because I understood that I wanted to be a poet because I liked the potency of poetry, I liked the potency of philosophy, but I kind of understood that most poetry and philosophy uh, works best within a narrative. So if I could figure out how to build a story or a structure of a story with characters espousing different philosophies and expressing different poetries, that would be the best way to facilitate communicating my inspiration into the minds of other people, give them something that they can latch onto, uh, like plot and, uh, you know, and, and character and voice and all that stuff. So I kind of started all over in Portland, started writing books. I uh, started at the beginning of time. I started my first um, uh, foray into rewriting the Bible, um, which I did several times over the course of 20 years uh, from 2000 to 2020. And, uh, and then I kind of spun my wheels for a while there. I found a girl in Chicago that I had been with beforehand, and we kind of wanted to be together. So I went out to Chicago. I grabbed her, and I moved back to Portland with her after a year in Chicago. And we built a life together, and I worked more in preschool, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And there was about four years of me writing about two novels a year. And every time I wrote a novel, it would, uh, it would just like shatter in upon itself. I could never finish these projects. They got way out of hand. And um, so did that relationship. And so my entire like ambition to be a writer and my uh, connection to, to society, which was based on this relationship with this woman, it all kind of dissolved. And uh, she left. And so did my ambition. And I just ended up starting all over uh, again, probably 2007, just completely starting over from zero. I had no ambition. I had no desire to be around people. I didn't want to be a person anymore. And I just disappeared into video games. I disappeared into a virtual uh, life. And I uh, totally gave up on everything, basically. But during my daytime, I was fortunate enough to get another job as a preschool teacher so I could still be human again. And I had to start and learn how to be human all over again. And um, at that point, um, it wasn't until I couldn't write anymore. I couldn't concentrate anymore. But um, I got put in to working with two-year-olds, one-year-olds, two-year-olds in the toddler room. And I started all over again writing poetry. But this time, not poetry, but songs. And I started writing uh, 
music. And I wrote, um, I don't know, 200 kids songs. And I just wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote. And they were so easy because I'd been like ambitiously trying to create these postmodern fictions that, you know, blah, 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 like super intense with the metafiction and the fairy tale and the mythology and the science fiction, the horror and all that stuff. And they kept on those, those structures that I was trying to create uh, to innovate fiction kept on failing. Uh, my experiments kept on failing. Um, so when I started writing songs, like all the pressure was off. It's really, really easy. So I could just like pump out a song. All you do is you find a tune, you find a rhyme, you build it, you find a little bridge or a chorus, and then you do it again and you do it again and you do it again. And through that project, I uh, started to kind of get my wheels turning again. It took a while. You know, I kind of spent time with music, not a good musician, but I, you know, I was playing that. I produced a couple of kids' albums. Uh, I produced, you know, I did about 200 songs, two albums. You can find those at benjamin.bandcamp.com. They're just produced on a MacBook didn't know what I, what I was doing, but there's some charm there. It's very just some guy that works on a playground singing the songs about how ridiculous it is to be a child and to be a human, right? Um, then I met up with a woman that I had met up with earlier, earlier in my life. Uh, we took a 15-year break and we got back together and she was up in Olympia. And so I followed her up here and I washed ashore on the beaches of Olympia and I spun my wheels for a few years um, and I didn't know what to do with my life. I didn't know what to do with my life. I didn't know what to do with my life. You know, I wanted to be creative, but this whole kids music thing was, it was a good idea, but I didn't actually have the skills to, you know, make the album, work with other people or, you know, uh, a lot of social anxiety. So I didn't want to go out and play shows like that. So I just kind of stalled out for a while. Um, and I went back and I tried writing again. I started getting back into writing, but there was something I was reaching and I was reaching and I was reaching, but I wasn't getting anywhere. And very much like my father, uh, that which I wanted to be, I thought that going to college would be the correct vehicle for me to really focus on my craft. And it just so happened that there was this college called Evergreen State College. It was down the road from me and it was very, very cheap. And there was this aspect of the Evergreen State College where I could create my own, um, my own major. I could do a lot of independent work. Um, so I had already studied 20 years of writing and reading and writing and reading and writing. So it seemed like Evergreen would be a great place for me because the trappings of a normal college wouldn't really be there. I could really focus on my craft. And it was actually the best place for me to go. It was very alternative. Um, and, it, you know, and there's a lot of junk in the evergreen thing uh, that we know of, that you guys know of specifically, but just purely at that point in time, this is 2013, purely from how I was looking at it as a non-traditional student, somebody in my uh, midlife looking for a restart, that was a perfect place to go. It was, it was really the perfect place to go. So I showed up on campus in the winter of 2013. I took this uh, this program called Iconoclasms, and I watched the teachers teaching the students, and I taught myself. I, I focused on my projects, a lot of independent projects, and then I watched uh, these 
people about my age, these professors about my age, kind of talk to the young people and trying to get them to, you know, be hungry for knowledge, be thirsty for knowledge, or trying to facilitate their hunger and thirst for knowledge. And uh, because of the way that Evergreen had been set up, it had been uh, kind of declining over the years. Uh, ideologically, it was kind of a bubble. When I walked onto campus, it was definitely like stepping back into 1995, like in peak uh, politically correct um, times. Uh, it was really weird. There was just signs and all this weird political stuff that seemed really chintzy to me and uh, not necessarily backward, backward, but out of date. And like, okay, people have been talking about that, you know, feminism or the patriarchy for years and years and years. Another slogan's not going to change them, guys, you know, and another personal project about how you think that, um, you know, you're objectified because you like wearing makeup or whatever isn't going to, you know, magically liberate females from wanting to look good. They, they want to do that, you know, whatever. I, I don't mean uh, to slander feminism at this point. I've tried to do good to really understand those ideas. But as they were presented by 20-year-olds, it's still kind of ridiculous, very sloganeering. And over the course of my time there, I got deeper and deeper and deeper into my own projects. I wrote, I rewrote my first uh, book of Genesis. I rewrote my last book of the world. You know, I I rewrote my uh, my beginning mythology. I rewrote my uh, my uh, you know science fiction uh, story. You know, so I have the the beginning and the end of time, which is what I wanted to create. Just like Tolkien, I wanted to create the I wanted to create an entire world, but created. Uh, create an entire world out of all the different kinds of storytelling there is. So I went through and I did my own work and I got a lot done. I, I maxed out uh, my attention. I maxed out myself. I went all the way to the very end and I went so far to the very end that at my, during my last year at Evergreen, I, I was working on this book and I had just published the, the first, uh, the first I actually published this physical volume of it, and that's how I always had written. I, I would write things, then I'd print them up so I could see them as objects, as books. Um, I finished this, and I was in the shower, and I realized that my life as a writer was done. I was because before I started writing this final project of mine, uh, for about a month before I started uh, the first page of this, I was starting to have panic attacks where I couldn't breathe. And it was like there was something growing inside of me. And it was something really overwhelming for me. Uh, and and then when I started writing that physical book, The Blackbird Variations, uh, I guess, volume six or version six, because there was six ones that I had to write failures before I got to this one, which I'm not saying it's success. But um, before I got into the project, I was being prepared for the project subconsciously. And then when I started getting in the project, there was nothing in the world but that project. It was very, uh, I was kind of a madman. I did a lot of recording of myself, talking to myself, and I was playing around with language a lot. You know, I went full evergreen. I was just like this really kooky guy in the cabin, in a cabin in the woods, you know, going to this kooky college in the middle of the woods. And at the end of the project, or right at, right about at the end of the project, there was this uh, one little piece of it, uh, which is the epic poem at the end. I was uh, composing this, and it was writing itself at this point. This is written in iambic pentameter. It's about the uh, first son of Adam and Eve um, and his decision to not go to heaven, but to build his own heaven. Um, and, and it was writing itself by that point. The, the 
best part of being a writer is when you can get yourself into a state where you become a conduit, but you have to put everything in order. It's not like you're not working anymore. You have to get everything ready and you have to really listen. You have to really prepare yourself. So I wrote about 600 pages of stuff just to you know, prepare myself for this little volume. Um, and while it was writing itself, I was in the shower and all the ego that I needed to invest in my work, all that self-importance, all those uh, hours daydreaming of people caring uh, about what I was writing, you know, like all those uh, imaginary uh, interviews uh, about, you know, like this great poet, Benjamin Boyce, you know, that, that you would do as a young person that everybody necessarily has to do as a, as a young poet, you know, that pretension, that pretending to be a dreamer and all that ego and that stress and that anxiety, uh, that anxiety of what if nobody cares? What if I put all this time, what if I put 20 years of my life into this project and nobody cares. It all left. I was, I was in the shower and it all left me and all, all that left me. And I realized like, it doesn't matter. I will die and the work's done. I will die. The work's done. It's no longer my burden anymore. It's no longer something to worry about anymore at all. Like I was just, I was, I was done. Um, and I had about six months left of evergreen. Um, you know, because, uh, you know, because the time worked out that way. So I had like, uh, yeah, I had about six months or five months left of Evergreen. And I just kind of like sat there on this text and I played with the text. And while I was at Evergreen from 2015 onward, I had watched that really crusty progressivism that I explained when I first got onto campus. That got reenacted or it got re, uh, revitalized somehow in a new form. And it was really different. And as I have shown in my uh, videos and my documentary, uh, I was there, I was watching my professors profess to this belief system, this diversity, equity, and inclusion belief system. And it brought me back to, you know, being in a cult. Like, and, and right, I, I was very young when I was in a cult, but I had always been aware of manipulative authority. I've always been aware of when people start to really um, center around a belief uh, as a group and to start to dance around a maypole of, of good and evil, of right and wrong, and start to suppress anything that questions that. And like, I would be in these seminars and like get really tingly. Uh, and I've shown a lot of that footage. I was there while that stuff was being created, those lectures, seminars, workshops, orientations, so-called. I was there, I was on camera. I was like, what's going on here? Something's going on here. And so to answer people who think, and you, of course you would have to be ignorant of my work to think this, but to think that I was a part of the Evergreen cult or I was somehow complicit in what Evergreen became, I don't think I was, but I was always very kind of on the outside. I've always been an outsider looking in, and plus my age separated me from every... It, the, my age, being 20 years or 18 years older than the students, separated me from the students, and my non-qualification as an actor academic separated me from the academics. It's really interesting. Um, and not every academic thinks this at Evergreen uh, or in general, but there was this line. There was this line that they were in the academy and I was outside of it. So I was outside of the academy, though I was going to the academy, and I was outside of like the normal range of where the students were. So I was kind of like a double outsider. And 
you know, the Jordan Peterson thing happened uh, in 2015. I, I stumbled on Jordan Peterson probably about six months before he got famous. I, I just watched a lot of his uh, episodes or his his videos, his schlubby prof- professor thing, which is the best Jordan Peterson, in my opinion. And then I watched what happened with Jordan Peterson. I watched that Yale event where this is not a home or this is. Uh, you know, where Nicholas uh, Christakis gets yelled at by that girl who says your job isn't to create an intellectual space, it's to create a home here. I watched as my, uh, as this new president came on to Evergreen to empower uh, very explicitly radical progressive ideas that would only accept one view of the world. Uh, I saw that coming on and while I was working on my own poetry and my own philosophy and all my own shtick, you know, that I eventually like am free from, um, I was watching this other story develop. Uh, I was watching this cult develop. I was watching all these kind of these students start to agitate one after the other after the other. They, they started to, to congregate and get more and more voice for us. And then Trump gets elected and, and the school just gets really, really weird. Like the school had already been weird, but something happened in about 2015 where everything really turned up. And I'd also been watching Gamergate happen. I'd been watching these other social justice movements happening in other parts of the culture. And I was just kind of, I wasn't really studying that directly, but I was very aware of what was, what was happening. And I was watching the ideas that were being espoused by the institution work themselves out in this uh, bad behavior uh, at the level of the student. One pithy saying that I've written down is that I spent 20 years teaching children to become adults. And then I went to a school that was teaching adults how to act like children. And that's kind of what I saw happening, that the this victimhood ideology or mentality was turning everybody into weaklings and jerks and authoritarian jerks. And, you know, it was just, it was, it was interesting. So I basically matured as a writer. I got, I went to Evergreen. I got what I wanted out of it. And then five months later, things turned around where I was watching, uh, I watched the school erupt. I was on campus when the uh, library building was taken over. I was actually in the library building while the library building was uh, taken over and barricaded. And uh, I was watching all these people walking around. And I've I've said those kind of stories um, before. And so when I, I, so I watched what happened at Evergreen firsthand, and then I watched it secondhand through all those streams. I watched all the streams myself, and I knew all the people in those streams. And then I watched people on YouTube start to tell the Evergreen story and to start tie the Evergreen story to these other cultural currents or to mock the students or to slice and dice and do amazing things with all that footage. And what I didn't see, I saw this really big lack of people really understanding what was going on there. Now, Brett Weinstein had a very good understanding of what was going on there. And he went on Rogan, he went on Rubin, he went on Tucker Carlson. I thought that, you know, the, the school erupted about Brett going on Tucker, but it was really the Rogan and the Rubin interviews that were really valuable to show what was going on at the Evergreen State College. I watched the teachers. I was in the room while they were writing that letter where they didn't denounce uh, Brett Weinstein, or I was in the room while one of the people who uh, composed that was writing that and 
collecting signatures and stuff like that. And I saw the faculty, um, not even, I saw a lot, of, I spoke to a lot of faculty, not even understanding what was going on on their own campus. Like even the faculty there were swept up in this narrative, which would be the anti-Brett Weinstein narrative. And a lot of people on the outside were swept up into this other narrative, but nobody really understood the whole thing. And I was in this particular position of being somebody who was there, who was an insider that was an outsider. I was, I was an insider who was an outsider and I had been to all those workshops and I saw all those recordings. I had been on camera for those. I'm like, well, we need to get this stuff out. This is a, I didn't even think anything about public records. I just like went through, I'm like, where are these videos? And I found them on YouTube and I, I republished them and I started to try to unravel what had actually caused what happened to happen. And my first video before I even thought that that was a viable thing for me to do as a storyteller to get on this weird YouTube place and just kind of speak my mind and like figure out uh, things in real time for myself. Um, my first move as a pundit, so-called, my first move as an evergreen student, so-called, was to try to explain the reasons why the kids were acting the way that they were. And my main thesis was that the ideology that they had been taught, uh, taught them that human beings aren't individuals. Human beings are basically these categories, and these categories are unfair. The way that these categories are treated is unfair and it's wrong and we need to reverse that. And instead of understanding that every individual human being is an individual, they were operating on a completely detached from humanity level of analysis. And so when they started to enact that philosophy of change, they were no longer acting human. They were no longer acting humanely. They were no longer really connected to their own selves in that moment and have any sort of sense of responsibility or of tact or of, of being embarrassed for how they're acting. They were completely off the charts because the ideology was completely off the charts, or at least the ideology had led them that far. And that was my first move. I'm like, okay, listen, we can look at human beings as these containers and these representatives of these identity groups. And then how do human beings behave? How do you order society when everybody's a marker of an identity? How do you do that? I think Evergreen is a very graphic example of how that works out. Now, there's maybe somewhere it, it, it doesn't act out that way. And maybe there is a truth to how people are treated by their containers. Maybe there's some level of truth to the different uh, disparities of treatment of these different people based on their race, based on their sex. Uh, we can go into that. But if you treat everybody, if you're beginning principle is not to look at the individual, it's to look at the identity, then you're no, then what are you actually doing? Where, how do you, how do you have a face-to-face -face conversation? How do you have a face-to-face -face conversation with an identity? It doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually work. It doesn't actually work. And, <clears throat> excuse me. And so, um, I started with that and I went on from there. And, um, some people, and, and so to answer the question, some people will say, well, why do you hate Evergreen? Why do you, you spend so much time hating Evergreen? You know, like, well, I don't hate Evergreen. <laughs> like, it was a great institution for me. And the people who are running the institution absolutely betrayed the institution. The, this institution of higher education took off the mantle of critical thought, whatever that means. They took off the mantle of uh, teaching people how to think, 
by, by pitting these different ideas against each other, and they took on the mantle of teaching people what to think and how to be in the world. They became a religious institution with a very rigid, rigid, newfangled ideology. It was a religion that wasn't a religion. It, was, it had all the trappings of Christianity. I'd be in these workshops, or these privileged workshops. I'm like, this is just a bunch of guilty Christian stuff. You know, I have nothing against Christianity, and I have nothing against guilt, but... <laughs> At the same time, like there's good ways of going about, you know, talking about that. And there's bad ways of going about talking about that. And what I saw was this broken ideology, this broken religion that had smuggled itself into a college by saying that it wasn't a religion. It was a moral principle or is a force for good or is something that we have to do right now to fix the world, to solve the world and watch the world blow up in their face. So, no, I do not hate Evergreen. I actually got a lot out of Evergreen. I put a lot into Evergreen. I'm very angry at the people who ran it ineptly and the people who fostered that protest and then covered for that protest and then got away, such as George Bridges, who's leaving Evergreen four or five months now with a million and a half dollars, you know, taking the money and running. So no, I don't ha hate Evergreen. I think that it was ineptly run. And uh, so I criticized that aspect of it. But as an idea and as a place and as a p part of my life, very essential, very wonderful. Like I say, a lot of times I went there to study how to make impossibly complex stories. And I did it as best as I could trying to master that. And then at the end of my four and a half years there, Evergreen gave me an impossibly difficult story to communicate to everybody else. So it kind of gave me the tools to tell the story, or I found the tools to tell the story that it gave me at Evergreen. So that was just kind of me trying to contextualize for anybody who is curious about that, who doesn't want to go off and, and listen to an interview, or uh, and I don't even know where it's found, which, which one gives uh, just an explicit autobiography of who this Benjamin Boyce is, why he's talking about Evergreen. And I guess you could think about Evergreen as a launching point for me into all the other themes that I cover and trying to explore the contours of culty behavior as it appears within the political civic discourse. Yeah, um, I meant to check out your music too, because aren't you a musician? Well, you know, I have some... Uh, sarcastically sad, sad songs, <laughs> but no, nothing produced. Were they, were they sarcastic when you made them or are they only sarcastic now in retrospect? <laughs> no, they, I mean, uh, you know, if you're going to be a sad, sad boy, you might as well do it with a smirk. Uh, that's what my <laughs> feeling was, I, I, you know, because I was, you know, in my thirties and I had like a, a, a shattered heart. <laughs> they had to men, but I wasn't going to go like full 16 year old style, uh, grunge emo stuff, you know, so a little twangy, uh, some tongue in cheek mocking, uh, both me and the object of my, uh, disaffection. <laughs> <laughs> Don't forget me. I've already passed far enough away upon this. See of endless possibility that I made when you up and left me for the promise of a better future, perhaps a better suitor than I could be when our fire died. And in our best moments, were we as half alive as when the gift of God first found us? Spinning restless in each other's arms 
on that illicit porch where you jump the gun and I drop the torch and Miles Davis, the swell of your pelvis, Elvis Presley, all else left me when hardly one year later my true love became my hater and I reached the apogee ornator of that symphony strapped my sinking feet How much history can one life hold? That urgency bold, all the love that I've invented, every woman that I've tempted to make believe or beholden to the fact that I adore them, oh, adore nothing more than more and more. Why Cupid can't afford to end? Don't forget me. I've already planted every seed I could come up with on short notice before the roots can take. I've passed away on this sea of endless possibilities, so restless that I may, when I recognize what I wish was mine is in fact not mine. So long, farewell. I'll always hold you dear. And I promise not to tell, 'cause I'm still the same as I was, the same as I will always be. Questioning myself, and at odds with sincerity.